Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back. It's another edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Ian Mendes, Sean McAdoo with you on this Canada Day for our listeners north of the border. Head on this show, we'll discuss the Habs playing a near-perfect game in Tampa on Wednesday night, but still coming up short thanks in large part to Blake Coleman's back-breaking goal at the end of the second period. And if Tampa wins this series, do we start throwing the dynasty term? around with this team. We'll hit on RNH's extension in Edmonton. Jesse Granger pops by for Granger Things. We'll open up the mailbag once again this week and discuss cross-checking and when and where it's allowed on the ice. And this date in hockey history looks back at the time the Quebec Nordiques traded Eric Lindros to not one, but two teams. We'll get to all of that coming up in the next hour or so. Uh, but Sean, as we kick off this show, it does it not kind of feel weird to you? Because July 1st, as I mentioned, it's for, for those of us north of the border, it's Canada Day, but July 1st has connotations in the hockey world, right? Like it's the date of free agency, the date of the new season, the new calendar. Does it feel weird to you that we're on July the 1st and we're not talking free agency? We're not talking, you know, that that sort of off-ice stuff? Yeah, this this is 
this is what we're supposed to be doing up here in Canada is you, you have your Canada day plans. You're doing something with the kids or you know, maybe you're up at a cottage or you're sitting around a, a fire, having a few pops and, uh, and you just wait for your phone to buzz every few minutes to give you some news about somebody yeah. going somewhere or, uh, you know, some, some move and, and then you're either excited or you're going, Oh, we gave that guy how much? Oh no, that's, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work out very well. And, uh, and it's a fun day. And then usually at the very end of the day, you get the, you know, Canada day is over when every Canadian insider signs off for the rest of the summer and says, yeah. see you later. And then you don't hear from them for, and then for two months, the hockey world can do anything and nobody will know because we don't have the, uh, the, the, the five most plugged in guys are all sitting around, uh, sitting on yeah, a dock and, and then you see pictures from like Pierre Lebrun's cottage. And it's like, how come everybody except the two of us is at that cottage? You know, like, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They're all there. There's even yeah. two empty seats, but I don't, I must have missed it. Must have gone in my yeah. spam folder or something. Uh, I don't know. Do you also think, like, look, and, and, and July the 1st, like I said, it, for those, uh, for our American listeners, this is essentially the equivalent of July the 4th, right? Like, this is our, our day to, to kind of uh, have a, a statutory holiday. Do you think that? In the future, the NHL should move July 1st out of respect to Canada? Uh, or do you think, Sean, that, ah, you know what? It's fine. July the 1st, it's a natural date on the calendar. It, it's it's quite all right. Because here's the way I look at it. There's no way that like Major League Baseball would put its trade deadline or something on July the 4th, right? Like There's no way that would happen. So mm -hmm. do you think that the NHL should say, you know what? Let's do June 30th. Let's do July 2nd. Let's do something different. Let's leave July 1st out of the equation. Yeah. You know what? I, I could see it, but I got to be honest. I kind of like having it on July 1st because what do we always say on trade deadline day, right? Which it's is always, it's, it's the other yeah, big it's, transaction it's day. At some point on trade deadline day, somebody always goes, man, you know, trade deadline day should be a holiday yeah. in Canada. It's good. We should all get the day off work and we should all be able to just do this all day long. Well, it, that's what free agency day in a normal year is, uh, is a holiday up here. And we get to, uh, so I, I kind of like that, you know, it's not so much fun if you're out in the middle of nowhere with no connection and, and you don't know what's going on. But if, if it's just a regular day off and, and you're sitting around a cookout or whatever, then, uh, I, I, to me, it's a pretty fun way to spend a holiday. Yeah. And I love to hear stories too, from our listeners of, you know, if you're from Canada and you've had the, um, you probably have memories of maybe being at a backyard barbecue or something. And then, you know, you find out it's signing, then you get, there's probably some great stories of great arguments and debates that have happened, right? Because like, yeah. Where were you when you found out about the Milan yeah. Lucic signing? Je Je Jeff Finger uh, signed for what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There've been, there've been a few of those. Oh, oh man. So, Hey, listen, uh, Wednesday night, the Montreal Canadiens and Tampa Bay lightning play game two. And Sean, I got to tell you watching that game, when Montreal scored to tie it with the Nick Suzuki goal at one, and then they were just coming in waves and waves, it like there's no way people thought you would see a stretch of hockey like that in this series from Montreal against Tampa. They dummied the Lightning for like 12, 13 minutes straight. They were coming in waves, coming in waves, and then Blake Coleman with the capital B backbreaking goal. Um What's our what's our view here? Because I think you can look at this two ways if you're a Montreal Canadiens fan or a player or whatever. I think position one is you look at that and say, you know what? We got some hope. We're not being run out of the building by the Lightning. We can hang with these guys. So, guys, if we can replicate what we did in the second period, say for the final five-tenths of a second, if we can do that again, we'll be okay. We can win four out of five if we do that. But then the flip side of that is, Sean, they emptied the tank. They did everything they could have done, and they still couldn't beat Tampa. 
which one of these things do you think is uh, is is more accurate? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. And if I got to pick one, I'm going to lean towards option one, but but with a twist. Because, look, we we all know, and certainly the players involved in this series, know how hockey works. Sometimes the best team doesn't win. Best team didn't win last night. Montreal Canadiens were the best team on the ice in, in game two. And sometimes you do everything right. And the, you just don't get the bounce. You don't get that play. The, the big save here at the other end turns the game. I think if you're Montreal, if you're a fan, certainly if you're if you're a player, you're going, hey, if we play like that again, chances are we win. We play like that in game three. Yeah, give us that game again in game three, and we like our odds a lot to, to, to win that game. And if we play like that every game the rest of the series, we're we're definitely going to win some games against these guys. And full credit to Tampa. They hung with it. I mean, that that second period, it was like watching a boxer yeah. up against the ropes, just getting hammered. And you're sitting there going, can he make it to the bell? And that is what it felt like watching Tampa in that second period. Could they make it to intermission and then maybe reset? Maybe John Cooper goes and peels the paint off the walls of the big speech or something to, to wake him back up. But you're just sitting there going, they're trying to hang in there. And then they land the knockout punch at the right at the end out of nowhere. Uh, you know, if I'm Montreal, I'm I'm sitting there saying a lot of people didn't think we could hang with these guys. A lot of people didn't think we even belonged. We know we belong. We know we can hang with these guys. And we know we can be the better team than these guys because we just showed it. That's all great. Here's the problem. you got to win four out of five games now. I mean, you're down two nothing. It's one thing to say, can we win game three? Can we win? You got to win four out of five against this team. And you just gave them your very best shot or what we assume is your very best shot. And it still wasn't enough. There's no guarantee. Even if you, even if you could replicate that game five more times, there's no guarantee you're going to get four wins out of it. And that's, that's where the math just starts to really worry you. Now, obviously you go out, you win game three. Suddenly the math looks a lot better. And we see lots of teams come back from two, one, and and then you got some momentum. You win game four and, and off we go. I won't do the whole, here's <laughs> yeah. how the series is going to play out shtick again. Um, but they're, they're absolutely in it. The old, all the old cliches, you're never out of it till you lose at home, all of that sort of thing. But yeah, there has to be a little bit of doubt in your mind. Cause, cause the, the piece of it is look, Montreal played great and they control how they play. So they can play like that again. Tampa didn't yeah. play great. And that's the thing that if I'm Montreal, I'm sitting there going, we're, we're, we're maybe not going to get another game like that from Tampa. We can bring our best, but they're going to bring something closer to their best. And it's, uh, you know, I, it, it, I like how Montreal looks in this series, but the math of being down to nothing just really, uh, really doesn't add up well for them. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned Blake Coleman delivering the knockout punch, and that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like the Habs had them. It was like a, it was all like Tampa did a rope dope where they just took a bunch of punches and then all of a sudden uh, unleashed an uppercut to the jaw that knocked the, uh, the, the Montreal Canadiens out there. Like, I'm, in my mind, I'm looking uh, back, and I even went on hockey reference this morning and, and tried to look back. Stanley Cup final, like shorthanded goals, Stanley Cup final, goals in the last minute of a period. Like, and I'm having a hard time, Sean, finding a bigger kind of backbreaking, or I'll use the term soul-crushing goal. Like, like, so not an overtime goal, because obviously that's um uh, obviously gonna be backbreaking and soul-crushing, but I'm talking about a goal scored in regulation time, like a momentum shift. Like it's for me, I'm having a hard time thinking of a goal. And and again, recency bias always plays in. Uh, into the equation, but boy, oh boy, like I'm having a hard time thinking of a non-overtime goal that swung momentum like that 
in a Stanley Cup final game? Yeah, there's there, there's not a ton, and certainly not a ton if you're looking for great goals, like goals that, yeah. that, that make the highlight reel like that. I'll give you a few. I, I got a few real nice ones, and then if, if another one that's maybe not the nicest goal, but you want to talk backbreaker, you go back a couple of years, the game seven with the Blues and the Bruins, the line change goal at the end of the first yes. period where Brian Marchand yep. goes off early and suddenly it looks like Boston's got a little something going and then St. Louis goes right back the other way and Alex Pietrangelo scores and and uh, that that one was a, a, a had the benefit of also it was a visiting team, right? So it was, it was a silencer in terms of yep. what it did to the crowd. But I'll give you three of what I would argue are three of the greatest goals in Stanley Cup final history. Uh, and we're at the, they all go back to the 90s. So we are going back a ways. I'm sure there's probably some better examples in there. But uh, first of all, the one that I would consider probably the greatest goal ever scored in Stanley Cup final oh, history. Mario. Mario against Minnesota yeah. North Stars. And I because I went back and I looked it up because I remember that series was a little weird. There were some blowouts in the series. And I thought, was that a blowout? Yeah. No, it came in game two. Minnesota... Uh, who a team that, I mean, geez, you talk about Montreal being an unexpected team in the final minute. The Minnesota North Stars were a flat-out bad team, but they go on a miracle run. They're playing the Penguins. Minnesota wins game one. Game two, Pittsburgh jumps out to a 2 nothing lead, but then Minnesota gets back in. It's 2-1. to one. Now you're thinking, geez, if they get the next goal, and that's when Mario scores that that absolutely unbelievable goal, and, uh, and the Penguins go on, win that game. Uh, and and win the series. Uh, so that one I, I would put up there. Maybe maybe not quite as much a backbreaker because Minnesota still came out of it tied, but um, that would be up there. The next year, 1992, game one between Chicago and Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. Chicago has a couple of three-goal leads, but Pittsburgh claws back. They get within one goal, and then with five minutes left, Yarmer Jagger scores that ridiculous goal we've all seen where he just dangles the whole team. I mean, I, I think he individually dekes out every single member of the Blackhawks yeah. on one shift. That was really the moment where Yarmir Yager arrived as this guy is not the sidekick for Mario Lemieux. This guy is another Mario Lemieux type talent. Um, and that, that ties the game. Uh, and then and then Mario scores at the end of regulation to win it. So again, it, it tied the game. So maybe not a total backbreaker, but uh, right up there. And then the last one, and this one's a bit of a, a bit of a spoiler for a thing that I'm working on for next week. So try to act surprised, but um, <laughs> the 1997 final Detroit, Philadelphia, Detroit's already up three, nothing in the series. So, I mean, we're already, Philadelphia's already in a bad place. Maybe they're already down and out, but Detroit's up one, nothing. Philadelphia is desperately trying to hold on, trying to claw back, trying to get the goal. that can maybe, you know, get them a win and, and, and you start a comeback. And then of all people on that stacked yeah. Detroit team, that had yeah. Iserman, Fedorov, Lidstrom, Shanahan. It's Darren McCarty scores one of the most beautiful goals in, that you will ever see in a Stanley Cup final. Um, goes end to end, goes around the defenseman, goes around the goaltender, and and scores a beauty. And that makes it two nothing. And and Philadelphia really doesn't get anything going the rest of the way. And that that holds up as the Stanley Cup winning goal. Yeah, that that McCarty one. I always say I have a, a hard time figuring out. Uh, and McCarty, I think he walked Yanni Ninema of mm-hmm. uh, of the Flyers for it that was, goal. Yeah. I yeah, I have a hard time. What's the better goal scored by like the the kind of the grinder kind of fourth line tough guy, Brad May with May Day yeah. or Darren McCarty? Yeah, man, I, they're I, both 
unreal. We we did that debate, and I, right? I I mean I think you got to go McCarty, and and now I know there are <laughs> there are people out there who'd say Darren McCarty wasn't a tough guy. Darren McCarty was you know he had uh, almost twenty goals that year. Claude Lemieux would probably uh, want to differ with you about the about the Darren McCarty's role, but I mean it was just such a beauty, and and that one I can only imagine being a player on the bench. Obviously, you're you're hyped for any goal, but when you see that guy do that. That has to be the moment where you're at Detroit, where you're looking around going, it's over. We got this. And remember, that was a 40-plus year uh, Stanley Cup drought in Detroit at that point. So you're sitting, the building is going crazy. Um, yeah. You're you're looking at each other going, this is going to happen. If Darren McCarty is deking out whole teams, this is going to happen. This is our night. And then it was. Yeah. So, look, Tampa wins that game. They're up 2 nothing, And the math will tell you. It's statistically pointed or weighed heavily in their favor now. Like it's uh, it's going to be awfully difficult for the Montreal Canadiens to come back and win for the next five. Stranger things have happened, but um, we're now looking squarely at the possibility, Sean, of the Tampa Bay Lightning going back to back, which is super impressive in the cap era. And in fact, even if you go back the last thirty years from the from the time you talked about Mario's goal against Minnesota. They would be only, if I'm not mistaken, right, the fourth team to go back-to-back. The Penguins went back-to-back in 91-92, and and, uh, Detroit went back-to-back 97-98. Pittsburgh went back-to-back 16-17, and now you're looking at Tampa. And I think we always, we had this great debate with the Chicago Blackhawks when they won three Stanley Cups in that window um, from 2010 to 2015, and we're like, are they a dynasty? Are they not a dynasty? What happens here? What's the legacy? What's the feeling? Let's say Tampa... um, do we start to use the dynasty term with this team, Sean, if they close this out and win this series? Yeah, I don't know. I've I've always felt like a dynasty needed three championships, not necessarily in a row. Uh, you know, I feel like, uh, especially in the cap era, that's that's just such a big ask. But uh, I've always felt like three was the number. But I we have been kind of redefining the term in the cap era. I think there's an understanding, you know, especially... Yeah. You know, you and I, we we both kind of grew up as hockey fans in the era where the NHL went from Montreal to the Islanders to the Oilers, and uh, it, you, that those were dynasties. And then even you know, even the Penguins early '90s, uh, yeah, I guess sometimes you hear them referred to that way, but uh, it, it feels like they needed the one more. Um, but it, it's especially in the cap era. I mean, it's it's an amazing achievement. And yeah, you you talk about the teams that have done it in the last 30 years. Look at the teams that haven't, you know, Colorado avalanche never pulled off back to back. New Jersey devils never pulled off back to back. The Blackhawks never did it. Kings never did it. It's, it's really difficult. And, you know, Tampa's still got a way to go, uh, you know, dynasty. I don't know if that's the right word, but they'll certainly be in the conversation for best team of the cap era. Like it feels like we kind of went through that where uh, we, we, once Pittsburgh got that third title, it was like, all right, Chicago or Pittsburgh, who do we have here? But Tampa's going to be one title short, but you know, you look, they had the trip to the final. They had so many other good years. They're absolutely right in the conversation for the the very best team. And and if if they can get that third championship, who's to say they're not going to, I mean, this team's going to look pretty similar next year and the year after that. And, and, and hopefully for a few years. So uh, these guys, this is a real, real good team. Uh, and if they can pull this off and, and go back to back in a, a league where you're not supposed to be able to do that, uh, it, it's going to be an enormously impressive achievement, even if old timers like me might hesitate to use the uh, D word for it. 
Okay, so now you said three Stanley Cups is kind of your baseline for uh, for a dynasty. So let me let me throw two teams at you. You tell me yes or no, they're a dynasty. New Jersey Devils, they win a Stanley Cup in 95. They win a Stanley Cup in 2000. They win a Stanley Cup in 2003. Yes or no? Dynasty. Yeah, I, 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 again, I don't think of that as a dynasty because they're just so spread out. Um, I think of that as arguably the model franchise, although Detroit and Colorado were, were right there at the same time um, of that era. I wouldn't say dynasty for that team, although if they had done it in the cap era, I might have I might have flipped around because I yeah I have if if the next team you're going to mention is the the Penguins of, uh, yeah. of the cap era, I might turn around there and go yeah you know maybe I'll give them the dynasty tag that I wouldn't give to New Jersey, and the reason is just once we got the cap, once we have parity, once we have this situation where you know it feels like everyone's uh, everyone's pretty much the same, it's it's the same amount of time. I don't know. I don't know why I feel like I want to give a different answer for those two. I probably shouldn't, uh, but uh, I, I do feel like the cap forces us to change the the definition because, as and, and hopefully Tampa Bay doesn't go prove me wrong on this, I can't imagine we're ever going to see a New York Islanders-type dynasty where a team wins four cups in a row ever again under this current system. So we kind of have to, to massage the definition, I would think. But I, I'm open to people telling me that, no, a dynasty is still a dynasty. If we don't have them anymore because of the cap, then that's just the way it goes. Yeah, and, and I think, too, uh, the argument in favor of Pittsburgh over New Jersey, not only the cup, but Pittsburgh did go back to back. You know, they won 16 and 17. And so and, and, and a lot of that core was part of it, too. Crosby, Latang, Malkin. So they had some, some continu- continuity um, during, those, uh, during those three runs. All right. As I mentioned to kick off this show. Sean, it is uh, July the 1st in Canada, usually means free agency. Uh, that's been pushed to July 28th, by the way. So for our listeners who aren't sure of what the new calendar looks like, free agency July 28th. But that doesn't mean some UFAs or potential UFAs aren't already off the market. Sean, this week, the Edmonton Oilers uh, extended Ryan Nugent Hopkins on what I think can only be described as, I guess, a team-friendly deal. Like I, I think a lot of people look at that and see like, wow, Ryan Nugent Hopkins signed for maybe less than what he would have got on the open market. And I, I guess my question to you is, do we look at this as, you know, Ryan Nugent Hopkins signing um, uh, an eight-year extension at basically five, you know, five, um, yeah, it's eight years, 41 million, okay? Do we look at that and say like, okay, that's an indication of a flat cap and there's going to be some more, team-friendly deals on the horizon? I, I think it certainly could. I mean, there are, we, we don't have a lot of experience in a flat cap world. We've got last year, which was a very weird year for, for multiple reasons. Um, I, and I, I think if we can pull any lessons from last year, it's that, look, if you're a superstar, if you're Alex Pietrangelo, you're going to get paid no matter what the situation is because some team will figure out a way to bring you on. But anybody else the market might not be what you think. I mean, look at Taylor Hall last year and, and that situation where he was probably the number one forward we thought going into free agency and, and the market just didn't materialize for him. Uh, a guy like Ryan Nugent Hopkins, I mean, look, part of this is I, I think players have to ask themselves, how much do I want to be where I am right now? How much do I, do I like where I am? Uh, and if so, can I get a deal that's good enough here before I go to the market? Because who knows? It, you know, Ryan Nugent Hopkins is one of those guys I would consider a real good player, certainly a guy where there would be interest. Uh, 
but how much interest and and how high would teams be willing to go? It's hard to say. And there, there's there's some uh, there's there's some unpredictable elements there. And I could see sitting down with him if I'm his agent and saying, look, here's what we've got in front of us. Here's what we think maybe where we can get Edmonton to go. Do you want to take what's right in front of you or do you want to take what's behind the mystery door, which which could be great? Maybe Brian Nugent Hopkins hits free agency and he's the number one name out there and, and teams are breaking down the door with big dollars or maybe not. Maybe the market goes in a different direction and, and he's kind of finds himself left behind. I would maybe take issue with you characterizing this as a team-friendly deal. I think this is a team-friendly cap hit. Certainly the, the 5.1 yeah. is, is a lower number than we would have projected for, uh, for a guy with his resume and his name value and, uh, and, and the sort of game he can play, but he got eight years and obviously, you know, not just, can you not get eight years in free agency? The maximum is seven if you're switching teams, but a lot of teams are going to be hesitant to even go that high. And he got eight years with a full no movement clause the entire time. That's really big. And, and in fact, you know, Ken Holland even said this, Ken Holland said, look, I wanted to keep the cap hit low. The player wanted term. So we gave more term than we wanted to get the cap hit and the player took less cap hit than he wanted to get the term. I, I think that's a good deal for both teams. And it could be a model for various situations around the league where there are players that are maybe not similar players in terms of, uh, in, in terms of what they can do, but players in, in similar situations where it's like, okay, do I want to go to market or do I want to just take what I've got and stay where I am? And and it's look, players are people and they're different. Some of them say, yeah, I want to go to the market. I want to, this is maybe my one chance. I want to find out what I'm worth. I want to talk to other teams. I want to see what's out there. And there's other players and, and maybe Nugent Hopkins is one of them where they say, I, man, that sounds terrible. I do not want to go through that experience. Lock me up as long as you can. And because I do not want to do this again. And, and uh, that's, there's no right or wrong answer there. It's, it's up to the individual. And this seems like a situation where at least right now, both sides got what they want. And, you know, probably for the next couple of years, which is prime Connor McDavid window time for the Oilers, they've got a real good player cheaper than they normally would. Four or five years from now, there's a good chance that whoever's running the Edmonton Oilers is looking at this deal going, man, I, I, I don't like this deal and I can't really get out of it because it's got a no move clause. That's life in the NHL. So you, you sort of pick and pick and choose. And I feel like this deal worked out fine for both sides. I'm not completely sure I'd say it's team friendly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. 
And as always, every uh, Thursday episode of the Athletic Hockey Show, time to bring in our pal uh, Jesse Granger for a segment we call Granger Things, brought to you by our friends at BetMGM, the exclusive betting partner with us here at The Athletic. Jesse Granger uh, joins us uh, last week at this time. I think we were kind of just um, setting up the end of the Montreal-Vegas series. The Vegas Golden Knights get bounced by Montreal and... You're right into off-season mode with the Golden Knights, looking at, hey, what's this roster going to look like? Who might be exposed to the expansion draft? Oh, no, actually, sorry. I've, what am I talking about? I forgot. You're the team that that, that the rules don't apply to uh, uh, to, to Vegas. So yeah, you're not rigged. like the rest of us. Garrett you're Batman not rigged yeah. it for you guys. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah. What yeah. a joke. Anyway, no, you're not You're not doing your uh, mock expansion draft. You're looking at how do the Vegas Golden Knights get Jack Eichel? But maybe you could just tell our listeners from your market's perspective, like how much chatter is there around Jack Eichel and are, are fans kind of saying, hey, we need something here. We need Jack Eichel. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the fans are saying we need Jack Eichel, but there's definitely talk. And that, that's kind of the first thing the fans go to. And I don't really blame them. They've sort of been trained to think that way by this front office. Um, they, they, they barely lost out on winning the cup in year one. They immediately signed Paul Stasny, who was the top center free agent that year. They trade for Max Pacioretty in a huge trade. The next season, they don't win it. They trade for Mark Stone. The next season, they don't win it. They sign Alex Petrangelo. So I think the next logical step for the Golden Knights is trading for Jack Eichel. However, I don't know how realistic that is. I kind of have dug into it in the last few days. And obviously, the Golden Knights need a number one center. If you were to look at this roster and say, what is the number one missing piece? Why can't this team win a Stanley Cup? I think elite number one center is usually that, I mean, most teams that win have one and they don't. Um, they have a lot of great players at other positions, and their centers were actually pretty good this year with Chandler Stevenson and William Carlson, but I think that is the biggest missing piece to this team. So obviously Eichel fits there, but his $10 million salary just does not fit on this team. Not only would they have to give up a haul to get him, which anyone would, obviously he's one of the best players in the league, but I think they would just have to do so much work around the roster to to make that $10 million fit that you see a team that was already hurt in depth this year. They had to play several games without a full roster because their salary cap was so messed up. I don't expect, I don't. I think it would be even worse if you were to add Jack Eichel, and I just don't see a way that that this one's going to happen. But as I said, with this front office, never count them out of a big fish in free agency or the trade market. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the things uh, Sean and I wanted to talk to you about this week, and maybe I'll let Sean even kick kick it off because. Maybe you could pick one of the trophies that you're most interested in. But we saw the NHL awards were handed out this week. And obviously, you've got some, um, you know, there's contentious debates that always float around with the uh, w- with the awards. But I think we're kind of interested in, man, if you had a time machine, you could go back in time and lay some money down on, uh, you know, whether it's the Calder, the Vesna, Norris, Hart, whatever. Like, you know, what would have been a good play? And I don't know, Sean, if you have one of those major trophies that you're more interested in. You know what? I've, I've got one that I'm most interested in, but let's start with the heart. Cause it's, I think the most straightforward one and co- the, the heart trophy gets won by Connor McDavid, the best player in the league and everybody's consensus pick for best player in the league. Uh, but if going back to the start of the season, Connor McDavid didn't win the heart last year uh, coming into this year, what kind of odds would I've got if I had, walked into a, a book in Vegas and said, I think Connor McDavid's going to win the Hart Trophy. Yeah, I think this is a good one to start with just because it kind of lays the baseline for for what to, to kind of set up how crazy some of these other ones are. McDavid was plus 700 to win the Hart at the beginning of the season. So if 
you're winning seven to one, basically. You're winning seven times what you would have put up to on, on McDavid to win the heart. At the midseason point, it was already so obvious because he was doing what he was doing that miraculous year that he was already minus money to win the heart. Just halfway oh. through the season, he was minus 150. Oh, so basically, geez. once you got to the midway point, it was hard to bet Connor McDavid with any value. However, it did get worse because by the time the trophy was actually handed out the, the day before the awards, um, Connor McDavid was minus 1100 to win the heart, meaning you would have to bet $1,100 to win $100 on Connor wow. McDavid to win the heart. So it was pretty obvious from everyone watching. He obviously won unanimously. He got every single first place vote for that, which doesn't happen often. So it was pretty obvious. Um, but if you could have bet him at the beginning of the season, I mean, you don't think seven to one is great odds for a future trophy. But after how obvious it was by the end of the year, you look back and it's like, wow, seven to one would have been great odds for mcdavid that that uh, that it feels amazing to, yeah. to look back and goes yeah seven to one which is just a testament to Connor mcdavid because it's Connor mcdavid against 700 other players uh and uh yeah even seven to one feels like uh feels like great numbers right so i want to know about mark andre fleury and the and the vesna trophy because here's a guy last year at this time was available you thought he was you know kind of just this this forgotten entity, and he comes back one of the great human interest stories of the of the past season, and he wins the Vesna Trophy. So if I had some money uh, back in in December or maybe even midway point of the season, what were we looking at with Mark Andre Fleury? Yeah, you would have had to been brave. Mark Andre Fleury was coming off a postseason where he barely played. Robin Leonard was obviously the starter, and then Fleury was the backup throughout training camp. He was. Robin Leonard started opening day in Vegas. So if you if you were betting on a backup goalie to win Vezina, it would have been 1,500 to one. I mean, sorry, sorry, plus 1,500. So it would have been only 15 to one, um, which seems very low for, mm -hmm. for Flurry. But I think you, you, you have the Hall of Fame resume that he has. And again, every I, I've said it a lot of times on here. You never get good odds betting on Vegas and betting yeah. on Vegas's favorite player. That is absolutely the fan favorite here by far. He's 99% of the fan base's favorite player. I think that you're definitely not getting great odds betting 15 to one on a backup goalie to win Vezina, but that's kind of what you get with flurry. And then Robin Leonard obviously was missing for a month here in Vegas and Flurry had to play all those games. And at that point, Flurry was leading the league in just about every stat goal saved above average, uh, save percentage goals against average and midway point. He was plus three fifty, So basically three to one, um, not great odds. And then by the time he won, it didn't change a whole lot. He was still plus two sixty three. So that kind of shows how good of a season Andre Vasilevsky had. Um, Flurry was right there with Vasilevsky in terms of odds. And again, I think that shades towards they don't, the, the odds makers are protecting themselves against the fans who, who would, are more likely to bet Fleury. Um, but it was a really close race between he and Vasilevsky. And then the votes ended up being really close. I think Fleury won 108 to 99 in terms of uh, just the way that they add those votes up. It was a really close race. So, so if you had Fleury back when he was behind Robin Leonard, you would have gotten him at a 15 to 1 odds. Not bad. I, I, I'll tell you right now, if if it had been at the beginning of the season and you said, you know what, I think I'm going to drop some money on Marc-Andre Fleury at 15 to 1, I would have talked you out of that so quickly. I would have said, no, you're, you know, it's Vegas. It's, the odds are all wrong. He's a backup. You're crazy. You're throwing your money away. So this is why you don't listen to me when it, when it comes to uh, this stuff, because I would have talked you out of that. I got to ask you about the, the one that I want to know about, which is the Norris Trophy. Um, 
Adam Fox was was he even on the board? Could I have bet on Adam Fox to win the Norris Trophy at the start of the season? You could have. It would have been thirty one and a half to one odds early in the season, which is by far the highest of any of these guys. And that's kind of as we expected. Adam Fox sort of came out of nowhere to win this award. Not that he wasn't a good player, but he definitely wasn't in the Norris uh, consider like conversation early in the year. He was uh, plus thirty one hundred and fifty and. Obviously, he played really well, but even midway through the season, he wasn't he still wasn't one of those guys like it was still Victor Hedman. Kale McCarr obviously got a lot of uh, talk this season, but even halfway through the season, Fox was still plus eighteen hundred to win the Norris. So you could have gotten 18 to one odds betting him at, at the halfway point. And then even leading up to like I so I, I had Fox on my ballot and I kind of thought he was going to win, but I wasn't super confident. But you could have still got plus five seventy. Leading right up to the award announcement, you could have won five to one, basically betting on Fox to win. And I think that just goes to show you when a guy, no matter how good his season is, when a guy who's kind of comes out of nowhere and isn't a, a household name like Victor Hedman and Kale McCarr, um, you can you can get good odds on him. And, and obviously he is very deserving of the Norris Trophy, got the votes, but he's a guy who you could have made some money on all the way through the season just because of that lack of uh, name recognition over the last few years, I think. All right. And, and last one for you real quick. I think a lot of people would have probably maybe put some money on Alexis Lafreniere to win the Calder Trophy. Uh, number one overall pick for the Rangers. Ended up going to Kirill Kaprizov of the Minnesota Wild. So walk us through the uh, the Calder Trophy and how that sort of played out throughout the course of the season. Yeah. So Kaprizov, and this is such a weird like trophy because you've got 24 year olds and and 19 year olds and like it's just so different the 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 types of rookies you can have in hockey and uh early on in the year Kaprizov wasn't soup like he wasn't huge odds he was plus 400 um he he was the third highest odds when the season opened behind Igor Shesterkin and Alexi Lafreniere so he was he was kind of up there considered a contender but not the favorite until March um in March he finally past Shesterkin and Lafreniere in those in those odds about halfway through the season he became a pretty overwhelming favorite he was minus 160 so you're already betting minus money to win a futures odd that's how good he was and then it would have been like it would have been Connor McDavid level odds for him the only thing that kept him from from really really running away from it was Robertson in Dallas um he kind of he kind of at least gave some people another person that could possibly win it. And so Kaprizov ended up being minus 900 uh, prior to the announcement. So you would have had to bet $900 just to win 100 bucks. Not quite Connor McDavid level running away with it, but still a pretty uh, comfortable win for Kaprizov. Well, excellent stuff, Jesse. As always, we appreciate uh, appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, uh, happy early uh, July 4th to you coming up uh, this weekend and all of our listeners down in, uh, in the United States. Thanks for doing this. We'll get you again next week. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jesse. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. 
The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, Sean, as always, wrapping up the podcast here by opening up our mailbag, and then we'll do some this date in hockey history. Uh, we've got a couple of emails coming in. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com is the way for you to drop us an email. You can also hit us up with a voicemail. Yes, we love to hear your voice. 845 445 I like this uh, question that's in the inbox, Sean, from uh, from Sean. Actually, Sean has written into the show and says, uh, here's a question I've been thinking about with revenue down and the regular season sometimes just taking forever to finish, especially for non-contenders. Do you guys ever think the NHL would reduce the number of regular season games but expand the playoffs? Meaning you get more high-profile, high-revenue games. Maybe all 32 teams are involved at that point. Maybe your regular season is in the neighborhood of 60 games. And then you play a playoff with all 32 teams. So the one thing I'll say, Sean, is I think I like the fact that the 56-game regular season was here this year, right? Like it felt like the games mattered. It didn't drag on. I doubt that we'll see a truncated regular season again. The owners know how to line their pockets. But I got to tell you, I like the idea, and I know our colleague Pierre Lebrun talked about it last week, about expanding the playoffs with kind of a play-in system. I'm all for that. I just don't know that we'll ever get down to like a 68-game regular season. Yeah, I, I have a hard time envisioning that. And I'm I'm on board with, with our, our listener who sent this in. It, it, the 82-game season does start to feel like a slog sometimes. There really isn't a lot to play for other than the 16 playoff spots. And that's obviously important. But really, by the time you get two-thirds of the way into the season... We know most of the teams that are going to make the playoffs. We know most of the teams that won't. There's a handful of teams on the bubble, we hope, in, on a good year, uh, fighting for that eighth spot. And, and that's really all we end up paying attention to. Nobody seems to care about the President's Trophy. Uh, seeding and home ice don't matter as much as they used to. There's so many upsets. There's so much parity that uh, it, it, as much as that might be a, a plus for a lot of people, it, it hurts the regular season because... Who cares if you finish first in your division or in your conference? There's no yeah. easy matchups. Um, and, you know, frankly, if you look at what the Montreal Canadiens have done, if, geez, if they go on and win the Stanley Cup, there's going to be a lot of people saying, what are we playing an 82-game season for? If the 18th best team, according to the regular season, can win the Stanley Cup, yeah. let's just get to the playoffs. Let's get to the good stuff. Um, now, we're never going to see a 32 team playoff like like what's being suggested there the you do that and now the regular season is completely meaningless because you're not even getting that one thing we get from the season as as fans which is narrowing down the playoff field i i can't imagine anyone going for that but the but 
the listener is right when he says, yeah, hey, if we're ever going to shorten the season, there's got to be some sort of expanded playoffs to go with that because otherwise this is just the owners giving money away. And we know that this is a gate-driven league. How many butts can you put in seats? How many sodas and hot dogs can you sell? Uh, that still drives the the NHL's bottom line far more than any other sport. So they're going to want those 80-plus games every single year. And and even if you went to a slightly expanded playoff, like Pierre's idea of, of, of having the, the play-in, which I like, I support that idea. Yeah. That's only influencing a couple of teams. And meanwhile, you'd be having 30 teams in the league losing however many games in regular season. The math just doesn't add up. And unfortunately, the NHL, it's it's all about the math and, and how that looks on the bottom line. I, I love the idea, though, of the expanded playoff, honestly. Like, just like you said, with yep. LeBron's piece, I, I liked it with when they did it going into the bubble, to be honest with you. Like, it was a 24-team uh, uh, playoff field that got down to 16, and I like it. I I think it's great. And if, if you had to ask me what's the sweet spot for regular season, I, if you could do 62 games or 64 games, that'd be great. And then get right into yeah. the class. But I'm with you. There's no the, the way. Only, There's no the, way the, the thing I, I don't like as a traditionalist, I love the 50-goal plateau, yeah. the 100-point plateau, all that. You lose all that or or you, you almost entirely lose it. But we've almost lost that anyways yeah. with, with the dead puck era. We let that go long ago. So I, I wouldn't mind it being shortened down. And I, I do. I like Pierre's idea. And if, if people haven't seen it, it's basically each conference would have six traditional playoff spots and then if you finish between seventh and tenth you'd play a little mini series probably two or three games to determine which teams would get those seventh and eighth spots and i know the objection to this is people say what i just said which is the regular season already feels like it doesn't mean very much why would we add even more playoff spots are you going to make the regular season feel even more meaningless and i argue that the play-in system that pierre's suggesting and, and that others have suggested makes the regular season feel like it means more because now suddenly there's all these different pressure points right now it's you're either eighth or you're ninth and that's the only race that matters the rest of it doesn't matter seating and the rest of it doesn't matter but if you go to something like this now suddenly obviously the the difference between 10th and 11th is huge that gets you into the postseason but the difference between finishing seventh and finishing sixth is enormous because you get to skip that play-in round, exactly. nobody's going to want to play in that play-in round. And now, also, by the way, those four teams, they're going to be playing this little mini round while everyone else is sitting and resting. So if you finish in the top two, you're getting one of those teams. You're rested, they're not. They're tired coming off of a series. So now finishing first and second in a conference actually matters again. I, I think it it just adds all these different races for us to watch instead of right now where we're just hoping that we get one race for that last playoff spot in each conference. And and some of the times we don't even get that. Uh, one other uh, mailbag question we'll get to, and I feel the need to admit to you, Sean, I took your officiating quiz last week on The Athletic. How, how did you do? I will be honest because I feel like, A, I could lie to you, but then I also feel like it was done on Google Forms. I feel like you could go back and find my... Uh, submission potentially. Possible. So I, I, I don't want to listen. We we've known each other a long time. I don't, I don't think I want to lie to you. I went eight for 16. You're above average. So I, you're, I, you're above average. The average score was six. Yeah. Out of 16. And so I top that you're on the good side. I've covered this game for 20 years and I went eight for 16 on an officiating uh, quiz. But before we get to this uh, next question, which is kind of, kind of related to officiating, 
Uh, what was the one question in your officiating quiz that I guess pun intended tripped up people the most? Yeah, it was uh, pun intended exactly. It was the tripping question, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people would assume that tripping is a pretty simple rule book. Don't trip, guys. That's it. Uh, but <laughs> the NHL rule book, for reasons I'm not completely clear on, goes into a little bit more detail than you might expect about how you can trip somebody. And what it does is it basically lists a series of body parts that you are not allowed to use to trip someone. So it's not just your stick or your foot. Uh, it goes down this list. You can't use your hand. You can't use your arm. You can't use your elbow. And so I, I put that on there. I said, which of the following body parts is not included on the list? And the one and, and it tripped people up because only 5% got it right. <laughs> Because the the one that's not in there, which you would think would be in there, is your shin. I mean, imagine somebody yes. coming across, you stick your leg out, they hit your shin, and they go down. Technically, by the very strict letter of the NHL rulebook, that's not tripping. Uh, and by the same token, if you were to just slide along the ice at somebody and with your torso take their skates out from under them, technically not tripping because the NHL rulebook has listed all of these things. If you use your elbow, that's a trip. Um, but as soon as you start listing things and anything that's not on the list, I, I guess doesn't fall under the rule. And that one, uh, did, uh, the, that had a 95% miss rate, uh, which is, is probably appropriate. Cause that seems to be about what we're getting from the NHL officials in this postseason. <laughs> okay. So this is, like I said, this uh, other question in the, in the mailbox in the inbox is kind of related to officiating. This one comes in from Scott who wants to know, can you guys explain why at any other time, at any other place in the ring? Cross-checking is not allowed, but if you do it in front of the net, it seems like a standard play and it's accepted. So what Scott is saying is, how come, Sean, if you're a forward in front of the other team's net? Okay, so let's use the two teams here in the Stanley Cup final as an example. Let's say Brendan Gallagher of the Montreal Canadiens is parked in front of the net in Tampa. What Scott is saying is... Why does a Tampa defenseman, uh, we'll just use Hedman here as an example, oh, Ryan McDonough, okay, Ryan McDonough. Why does Ryan McDonough get to cross-check Gallagher a bunch of times and it's passed off as battling for position? But if this happened in the neutral zone, let's say for some reason Gallagher's in the neutral zone and he gets cross-checked in the same manner by McDonough, it's a penalty there. Do you have any feelings on this? Is there is there some truth to this that you're allowed to cross-check guys in front of the net? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what the rule book says. Uh, and the rule book doesn't say very much. Cross-checking is one of the shortest and simplest rules in the entire book. We just talked about tripping, how it goes into a, a weirdly specific amount of detail. Cross-checking isn't that. The cross-checking rule in the NHL says you can't have both hands on your stick and check somebody with the stick that's held in between those two hands. And that's it. That's all it says. It then goes on to explained that there can be minors and majors, but that's left completely to the official's discretion. There's no uh, there's no mention of where in the rink it happens. There's no mention of where the contact is on the other player or what the other player is doing or what's happening in the game. There's no context. You just cannot hold your stick and hit somebody with that stick held between two hands. And that's all the rule book says. So uh, in in terms of the letter of the law no there is no explanation that i can that i can give scott here because there there isn't one in the rule book now this is one of the many many cases where what the rule book says and how it's called have evolved 
differently over time. And certainly in the NHL, they do let stuff go in front of the net. And they will also let stuff go in board battles. Uh, Justin Bourne uh, over at Sportsnet had a really good piece a couple of weeks ago uh, where he sort of explained the difference between cross-checking and pushing with your stick, which to my eyes looks exactly the same, but he is a former pro player. Um, sees a difference there and, and, you know, understands that you, you may be pushing against somebody on the boards for position um, without cross-checking them. Uh, and that we've seen that. And, and certainly, I mean, you look at the, the cross-check on Nikita Kucherov last week, uh, that, seen, that, that happened in that area, but it seemed like a clear penalty. It wasn't called. But where it, it really becomes obvious is, is in front of the net. And look, the league, right or wrong, seems to buy into this idea that if you're going to go in front of the net, there is going to be a price to be paid. That is going to be a battle zone. That is a, it's a very dangerous place for a member of the attacking team to be in terms of, of their potential to score a goal. And so they, the defensive team is not going to want you there and they're going to fight hard to push you out of there and you're going to have to fight hard to stay there. And, and I think the league kind of likes this concept of the net front battle. And, you know, I don't mind it as as sort of an old school fan, um, you know, I, I don't mind it. I, I've had lots of players that I really liked in my time who would go and, and set up camp in front of the net. And I've had a lot of defensemen I liked in my time who were really good at clearing the net. And you just see the defenseman and the forward both try to establish position and it's, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing and shoving and, and trying to get that leverage on each other. Um, but it, it feels to me like it's a, maybe a relatively recent thing that that evolved to the point where you just get a free shot right into the ribs yeah. of a guy who's standing there. I mean, we're not talking here about trying to establish position, use your weight, use your strength to get a guy out of the way. This is just, oh, you're standing in front of the crease. Well, I'm going to just wind up and two hand you right in the ribs or right in the small of the back. And they, they will call it occasionally. Um, usually only if the guy goes down, um, but I mean, how many times have we seen it where star players too, in a lot of cases are just getting hammered there and there is nothing in the rule book that says that's okay. Uh, and, and it's, it really is something where I, I, I feel like I grew up watching the Norris division. I watched all sort of dirt, dirty, uh, nasty hockey. And it didn't seem to be that you used to be able to just wind up and crack the guy like, like you can today. That's an area they've got to look at. And, you know, we've seen this a couple of years. You don't have to rewrite the rule book. We saw it a couple of years ago with slashing, right? Where guys are getting slashed on the hands. Yep. And the league just said, look, just call it. Call what the rule book says. He's slashing on the gloves. That it's not allowed. And we saw that. We saw a bunch of penalties for a couple months, and the players adjusted. And, and this would adjust, too. I don't mind if a defenseman wants to go over there and clear a guy out. I, I don't want to turn this into basketball, where if you got both feet planted, no one's allowed to touch you, and that's your spot. Yeah, let them battle. Let them push and shove and, and all of that stuff. But uh, you know, being able to just wind up and and uh, and cross-check a guy as hard as you can because he happened to be standing in a place that he's allowed to stand, uh, that it's it's gone too far in that direction. And I'm, I'm with Scott absolutely that uh, they need to do something about it. All right, as we wrap up with this week in hockey history, let's uh, talk about a guy that was almost impossible to move from the blue paint. That was the biggie, Eric Lindros. Uh, this week in hockey history, Sean, I, this is a fascinating story, and I think it's a cool one for the younger listeners, too, that might not know what happened. So in the early 1990s, Eric Lindros was taken first overall by the Quebec Nordiques. Lindros says, I am not going to play in Quebec. Gets drafted in 1991, 
A full year goes by. He still hasn't been uh, traded or reported to Quebec. Finally, the Nordiques realize, hey, we, we got to make a deal for this guy. But here's the, here's the catch. The Nordiques trade Lindros to two teams. In fact, there's two teams that believe that they've made a deal with the Quebec Nordiques. One is the Philadelphia Flyers. The other is the New York Rangers. And Sean, this week in hockey history, June 30th, 1992, an independent arbitrator looks at all the facts, collects the information, and deems that the Philadelphia Flyers, in fact, have the legal and binding trade with Quebec. They get Eric Lindros sending Peter Forsberg and company to Quebec. I mean, has this ever happened in any other sport? Has it ever happened in hockey where a, a guy gets traded and two teams think they've got him? There, there have been cases where there have been disputes over trades. There was a, a, a famous case where uh, I think it involved Chris Gratton and uh, there, there was an offer sheet and Phil Esposito claimed that a fax had been smudged and, and all of that uh, stuff. That was in the late 90s. But there's never been anything like this. Uh, I mean, it's if you weren't a fan back then, it's hard to overstate how big a prospect Eric Lindros was. I mean, this this guy was a Connor McDavid level sure thing coming into the league. So imagine if Connor McDavid had said, "No, I'm not going to Edmonton. I'll sit out a year," and then the Oilers have to trade him at the draft. I, I mean, it, it's it nobody would even be paying attention to the picks. It would be the biggest story of the year, and as this was, and what turned out to have happened is that the uh, the Nordiques had a few different teams in on it. New York and Philadelphia primarily. Chicago was apparently in on it too. And apparently Chicago even kind of thought going into the draft that they were they were going to get them. But in the end, the, the price gets too high. Uh, and, uh, and Quebec goes to both New York and Philadelphia and says, this is what we want. They've got offers on the table. They kind of like New York's offer a little bit better. Philadelphia calls them up and says, you know what? We'll do the deal on the table. They say, okay. They make essentially a handshake deal. They do not file any paperwork. Uh, and as they are waiting for Philadelphia to pick up the phone and contact Eric Lindros and, and talk to his representatives, New York calls up and says, we'll do the deal on the table. And Quebec likes that deal better. So Quebec goes, well, you know what? We haven't signed anything with the Flyers. So tough luck for them. We'll take the Rangers deal. Uh, and they go and file that paperwork at the league, and Philadelphia says, wait a second, we were told we had a deal. There was a, there, there was a handshake, there wasn't a signature, uh, and it, it turns into this big mess, and they end up going to the independent arbitrator, and I, you tell me if, if your memory matches mine, because I feel like going into this, the expectation was that the Rangers were going to win the case. Yeah. And that the, because they had it, they, they had it signed, and the Flyers had a handshake, but you know what, what's what's a handshake necessarily worth in a in a legal dispute when the other side's got a signature, and the arbitrator didn't agree. The arbitrator that the, he he essentially ruled that that a handshake deal was still a deal, uh, and also a key detail of it had been that the uh, the Nordiques had told teams we will not let you contact Eric Lindros and his representatives until we have a deal, and so the fact that they gave those phone numbers to the Flyers told the arbitrator that they felt that they had made an official deal and that it was done. Uh, and so it, it was it was a big mess. It, it blew up. It obviously had an enormous impact on three teams because the Nordiques get Peter Forsberg package and, uh, and, and they eventually become champions in Colorado. The uh, Philadelphia goes on. They get Eric Lindros. Don't end up winning a Stanley Cup, but he's he's great for as long as he's healthy. And you look at the New York Rangers, this is 1992. They're two years away from winning a Stanley Cup. Do they win that Stanley Cup? 
if they've traded away uh, all of these guys that were alleged to have been in the deal, like, like Adam Graves was in it, Mike Richter was was one of the names, probably not. So uh, just a, a monster, a monster trade, a, a completely bizarre situation. And if you've ever wondered why the NHL has this formal trade call process, you may have seen videos yeah. of it where they have to call in and the guy sits there with a the little checklist. And this is why, because now the NHL has the rule set until the trade call, you always hear it at the deadline, right? Until the trade call is done, it's not done. But back then, they didn't have that rule. Back then, the, it was, well, when it's done, it's done. And, and it turns out the two teams, or three teams in this case, could have a different view of what it means for a deal to be done. Yeah, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the arbitrator in that case was Larry Bertuzzi. And the only reason why he I know, was. right, is because Bertuzzi, the last mm-hmm. name, uh, became prominent later with, with Todd and Bertuzzi. I believe was the uncle yeah. or the great uncle of Todd Yeah, there was a relation was a there. Relation. Uh, yeah. Do you think at any point in Larry Bertuzzi's uh, you know, final ruling is like, okay, listen, I gotta be at some point. I promise you, Eric Lindros will end up with the Rangers. We cool? Everyone's cool with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, maybe, maybe that's how it went, and maybe it's one of those things. I don't know. I know a lot of Flyers fans that say it's a careful what you wish for because they might feel like the Lindros era didn't, uh, didn't work out. I, obviously, there were times where Bobby Clark felt that way, but Eric Lindros was just a monster of a player. Oh, yeah, it's really too bad he didn't stay healthy because he, uh, uh, he was absolutely, uh, uh, ab- absolutely amazing. And we, I don't think we will ever see a deal again like this for a guy who has never played in the NHL, has not played one game, has not scored one goal in the NHL. And you had multiple teams willing to, to just blow their roster sky high to get this guy to build around. It was, uh, it was a really amazing few weeks. All right. One other, uh, speaking of an amazing period of time, how about the 23 minute span June 29, 2016, so just five years ago, Sean, in a 23-minute span, some call it the craziest 20-some-odd minutes in hockey history, Montreal and Nashville engineer a significant trade, Shea Weber for P.K. Subban, Taylor Hall, it was one for one, Taylor Hall goes to New Jersey for Adam Larson, Steven Stamkos re-signs with the Tampa Bay Lightning, this all happened in a tight window, I remember I was doing, I was hosting radio back then, I remember I had a full outline for my show, and I'll never <laughs> forget taking it and dropping it in the recycling bin. I'm like, all right, we got to fly by the seat of our pants. It's the only time I ever felt, Sean, that the NHL kind of mirrored the NBA. I'm like, this is what it must be yeah. like to be an NBA fan. Like crazy stuff goes down, and there's drama and stuff. All things are happening all at once. I was like, man, for 20 minutes, I felt like an NBA fan. It, it was honestly. The most entertaining, certainly the most entertaining hour of an off season that I've ever seen in the NHL, and and I'd put it right up there against a lot of stuff that happened on the ice. It, it was just the, I mean, the, the most amazing part is when when we all woke up the morning of June twenty ninth, two thousand sixteen. The absolute biggest story in hockey was Steven Stamkos. Yep. he was three days away from free agency. He had reached the window where I think he was talking to other teams. There was a lot of things. Is he going to go to Toronto? Is he going to come home? Is he going to go to one of these other teams? Can Tampa still keep? By the end of this hour, the Steven Stamkos story was over, and it was a footnote. Yeah. It was like, I mean, you were talking to your friends. Did you hear? Did you hear? And then you might like, oh, by the way, also Stamkos is going back to Tampa. And nobody even blinked at that point. Yeah. Because those two trades, I, I mean, I... 
you know me, I'm a trade guy. I love trades. I love one-for-one trades. And you could argue two of the biggest in the history of the NHL happened within minutes of each other and with very little warning too. I mean, we had, there had been speculation about Taylor Hall potentially being, being traded uh, in, in Edmonton. The PK Subban in Montreal, there had been rumors, but then like Mark Bergevin, I believe had come out and said, no, we are not trading him. And that was like a day or two ago. And then, and, and certainly the, you know, a name like Shea Weber, you're, you, you weren't thinking that at all. You're thinking, my goodness, they trade him. It's going to be the usual pick, a prospect, a draft pick, uh, you know, maybe a guy off the roster to, to trade Shea Weber for PK Subban was, was just a jaw dropper. And, and I'm trying I think the order of operations was Taylor Hall trade first. Yeah, that's what I think. And then, so, I mean, Taylor Hall trade happens and you're going, this is unbelievable it's the bob mckenzie's famous the trade is one for one everybody thinks the oilers have been ripped off you you can't believe that they all they got was adam larson and you're sitting there going man we're going to be talking about this for days maybe for weeks and then the suban weber trade drops and that was felt like an even bigger deal at the time and and just it was a fascinating time to be on twitter it i'm sure was a fascinating time to be hosting a radio show and reacting to it all in live time uh, real time uh, and man, I, we complain a lot that the NHL offseason maybe doesn't pack as much punch as it could. This was the one time we got a whole offseason's worth of fun crammed into about 20 something minutes. Yeah. And it was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, no, it was, it was truly, truly remarkable in that, uh, that little window. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, listen, enjoy the, as the series now shifts to, to Montreal for game three, enjoy that. Happy Canada Day to you, Sean. I know we had to work on Canada Day, but hey, uh, this doesn't feel like work when you have so much fun. Right on, and happy Canada Day, everyone out there listening. Happy Fourth of July. Uh, if uh, for for those who aren't those Americans who aren't listening to the Gentilian Customs <laughs> yeah. uh, American Propaganda Hour, yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, let's enjoy the last few games and let's get into an off season and hope it's as good as that uh, twenty minutes. Five years ago. Yeah, and it should be a lot of fun with the expansion draft, free agency, entry draft, all that stuff. So listen, that does it for this edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Want to remind you, check out our podcast this week. Uh, Pierre Lebrun, Scott Burnside, uh, two-man advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Katie Strang, Rick Westhead, they've been terrific in their coverage of the Chicago Blackhawks. They joined Burnside and Lebrun on the podcast on Wednesday, so download that and listen to it if you haven't had an opportunity and uh, like I said, you, we'll, we'll get you again next week, uh, Sean and I, on Thursday. And if you're not a subscriber with The Athletic, you can join us at theathletic.com slash hockey show, and you'll get a subscription for just $3.99 a month.